The first reading this evening is Esther 3. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore, therefore they told Haman about it, to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated. For he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, they cast the pure, that is, the lot, in the presence of Haman to select a day and month and the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed and scattered among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom, whose customs are different from those of all the other people, and who do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king... Let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will put 10,000 talents of silver into the royal treasury for the men who carry out this business. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. Then on the 13th day, of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. They wrote out in the script of each province and in the language of each people all Haman's orders to the king's satraps, the governors of the various provinces, and the nobles of the various peoples. These were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, annihilate, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and little children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of that text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that they would be ready for that day. Spurred on by the king's command, the couriers went out, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, 
and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hadach, one of the king's eunuchs assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hadach went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain to her. And he told him to urge her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hathach went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that he be put to death. The only exception to this is for the king to extend the gold scepter to him and spare his life. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to the royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done... I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. Let's pray together as we stand. Heavenly Fathers, we meet this evening. You know the state of our souls. We... You know if that is the true um, expression of our heart and our soul. But Father, we pray this evening that whatever condition you find us in, your word would uh, treat us. If we need encouragement, it would do that. If we need rebuking and challenge, it would do that also. But Father, please leave us rejoicing in grace. I'm truly saying 
that it is well with my soul, for we know where we stand before you in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask in his name. Amen. Do grab a seat and do turn back to Esther, chapter 3, page 503 in these church Bibles. For more craziness at the court of King Xerxes. Um, and uh, somewhat like a, a well-crafted uh, film or, or plot, um, the characters are getting revealed one by one. And uh, we meet them at different times and eventually we'll see how all their lives are, are tangled in together. Uh, so tonight we meet Haman, the wildly insecure Prime Minister, uh, but we'll get to him in a moment. I guess the... Uh, the uh, yeah, sorry, sorry, sorry. Um, uh, the question that will get chucked up, up uh, tonight then is how, how should we live in exile? Slightly odd question, I guess, to begin with. But um, I get familiar, more familiar for some. I mean, uh, there are a number here... Uh, um, Tonight, uh, living in London, who uh, home is overseas. And um, so, you know, on a regular basis, you'll, you'll do uh, occasional things to remind yourself, you know, I don't want to throw away my culture. So the Aussies will get together and have Anzac Day, and Americans will get together and have a Thanksgiving meal. And yeah, you know, there's good, uh, good expressions of a national culture. You may feel a little bit like Sting. You know, I'm an alien, a legal alien. Hopefully, you're all that. A legal alien <laughs> in London. Um, as he, uh, I guess he could have rephrased it in a certain sense. Now, the Bible, of course, or maybe not, of course, but the Bible often refers to God's people, believers, as aliens or strangers living in a foreign land. That is, even though we live in uh, London, not to do that, this world is a foreign land because our home, our homeland is heaven. Or we'll be at home in the new creation when we get there. So at the moment, we are aliens. If you're a Christian, that is. You just, you get the Bible will describe you as an alien or a stranger. That's helpful to bear in mind because back in uh, this book, the book of Esther, here are God's people in the Old Testament. So the Jews in the Old Testament, just as Christians are now God's people. But um, here they are in exile. They're in Persia. In around 480 BC, that's not where they should be. They should be in Jerusalem. That's their homeland. But they've been uh, booted out, conquered, and they're in exile in Persia. Now, how should they live under the Persian regime? They are aliens in a strange land. And the Bible would express them. It's expressed a number of times in the Old Testament. What should you do if you're in this condition? Well, uh, there's a tightrope to walk. Because on one hand, you want to be involved in your society So work for the good of the society you find yourself in, but don't be completely assimilated. So you want to work for the good of the culture, the city, the society, but you also want to maintain your distinctiveness. And that's the tightrope that God's people are meant to walk back then and and indeed now. We saw a little bit last week that uh, the two main Jewish heroes of the book, God's people, the heroes of uh, Esther and Mordecai, last week, chapters 1 and 2, while they slightly drop the ball, they don't do a brilliant job of standing out and being distinctive. They just blend in. They're completely assimilated uh, by the culture of the Persians at the time. So how, you know, we think a little bit more tonight. How, how do we go about it then? Living in exile, it's complicated. But um, just like these people back then in Persia, they were somewhat at the whim of the dominant culture. They didn't have a lot of power. Um, society was pushing in on them, trying to form them into, you know, just be good Persian citizens. Uh, well, it's not wildly different now if you're a Christian. Perhaps not much power. 
feeling that the culture is trying to shove you into a certain mold, well, I mean, it's not a wildly dissimilar situation. So how, how are we to live? How are we to live in exile, being both on the one hand involved in our, in our city, in our culture, in our society, for its good, but also maintaining uh, a distinctiveness? Well, uh, a couple of principles uh, stand out from uh, chapters 3 and 4. Refuse to kneel and risk the palace. Very obvious. We'll see. Uh, first then, uh, refuse to kneel, like Mordecai did. Now, if you were here last week, you'd, you'll know that at the end of chapter 2, Mordecai is the hero. So there's been a plot to kill, to kill the king, King Xerxes. Uh, he was going to be assassinated, but Mordecai discovered this and uh, revealed this, revealed this plot. So the, um, the, um, uh, the plotters, the assassins, they were rounded up and taken away. Hurrah, well done, Mordecai. But nothing happens. You know, he should have been greatly rewarded, but the king sort of, I don't know, you know, he's, he's we found in chapters 1 and 2, he likes a drink, he may have been blotto, who can tell? But... Um, it just, nothing happens. So Mordecai doesn't get the recognition he desire, uh, deserves. By contrast, it's his enemy that does. So chapter 3, verse 1. Mordecai, nothing happens to him, but Haman gets the honor. Do you see that? It was really emphasized four times. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman's, and um, he gave him a seat of honor, verse 1. All the, uh, verse 2, all the royal officials paid honor to him, but Mordecai wouldn't bow down and give him honor, 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 honor to Haman. Now, so what? Well, the striking thing about Haman, which you'll all have noticed, he's an Agagite. I mean, that's shocking, isn't it? Why? Okay. Um, why, what's so significant about that? Well, it means he's descended from King Agag, the Amalekite. Uh, those are one of the oldest enemies of God's people in the Old Testament. And they are, you know, there's a sort of long-running battle between the Amalekites and God's people, the Israelites, going on throughout Old Testament history. It begins in, chap- in Exodus chapter 17, where Moses predicts the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation, and it rumbles on uh, throughout much of the Old Testament. So um, if, you're, if you're a Jew and you read this, you think, oh, that's disastrous. That's like, I don't know, Cold War era, you know, real hostility, capitalism, communism. It's like, and then someone makes the announcement, Boris the communist has become uh, UN Secretary General. You'd think, oh, no, you know, that's not good. Boris the communist. Um, you know, Haman the Agagite has become you know, honored, has got the position of honor as a prime minister effectively in the land. That's not good if you're a Jew because you know he doesn't like you if you're a Jew. Now, much of the book, then, uh, from this point onwards, is concerned was in the, uh, the battle between um, Mordecai, the Jew, that's how he's described six times in the book, Mordecai, the Jew, and Haman, the enemy of the Jews, that's how he gets described. I mean, you know, the, the, the author's trying to make it very clear. In the blue corner, Mordecai in the red corner, it's Haman. And so it's, much of the book is a contest who comes out on top between these two. Well, it doesn't start very well for Mordecai. Haman gets the honor, which should have been Mordecai's. He was the one who done, you know, saved the king's life. Haman gets the position of honor. What does Mordecai do? Verse 2. He would not kneel down or pay him honor. Okay. <laughs> Why not? 
I mean, later on in the book, uh, Mordecai, he bows down to the king, King Xerxes, so he's got no problem with bowing down to other people. It's not just that he's proud, particularly, or arrogant. What's going on here? Is he just having a, a funny moment? Uh, just doesn't like people whose name begin with H. I mean, what's, you know, what's, what's the issue? Well, I think we're told at the end of verse 4. Um, you get to Mordecai's lackeys, they go and, um, sorry, Haman's lackeys, they go and speak to this man, Mordecai. Oh, you're not bowing down to our boss, why not? And then they go and see Haman. Hey, boss, this man's not bowing down to you. And we're told why, verse 4. Mordecai, Therefore they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated. For he'd told them, he was a Jew. Ah. Okay. Mordecai won't bow down because he's a Jew and Haman is an Amalekite or an Agagite. And they're just ancient enemies. Okay. So what? So what? Well, it's interesting because at this point, Mordecai has just drawn a line in the sand. He said, okay, that's enough. I've had enough. Here's a man who for five years has just blended in. He's just been compromised. Do you remember um, twice in chapter, t- uh, chapter 2, verses 10 and verse 20, he says to Esther, his uh, niece effectively, shh, don't tell anyone you're a Jew. Shh, just blend in. Just do what the Persians do. Compromise, compromise. Don't, don't stand out as a Jew. Don't let anyone know. He's, you know. That's been going on for five, six years maybe. All of a sudden he says, oh, stuff it. I, I've just had enough. Yes, I've been compromising, but I know more. I just draw the line at this point. I can't do that. I can't bow down to this man too much. So it's kind of like a moment in, um, in a film where the hero, you know, he's just been sort of downtrodden for, you know, for a period of time. All of a sudden he just says, no, and stands up and he's going to fight back. Or perhaps... Um, uh, you know, at the moment in, in Schindler's List, Oscar Schindler, he's uh, out for a horse ride with um, his girl of the time, and uh, they come to the, the crest of a hill and they look down on um, Krakow, where the ghetto is being um, uh, uh, closed down, and all the people in the ghetto are being taken away um, off to concentration camps. And as he looks down upon this, he's just—I mean—you see the horror on his face. This is. This is too much, too much. I can't can't work with this regime anymore. So he draws his line in the sand at that point and, of course, um, then uh, seeks to uh, undermine uh, the uh, the Nazi regime and and work for the good of those who are working in his factories. But this is Mordecai's moment like that. He says, I've had enough. You know, I, I can compromise so far, but at this point, too much too much. I can't, I can't bow down to this man. Now, look, uh, is Mordecai correct? Uh, you read this, and certainly, uh, to me, yeah, to most of the commentators say, look, this just seems a bit arbitrary. You know, why, why at this point, why does he now say, oh, look, I've had enough? Why, why draw the line here, Mordecai? Why not several years earlier? Why, why is this the issue? I mean, you know, it's not black or white. You just seem to have just sort of plucked this one out of the air and, and said, uh, no, that, that's enough. Well, I, I think the point is, he drew the line somewhere. And I think that's the point we're meant to take from it. Okay, he, for years and years, he just compromised and uh, society had pushed him into a certain mold. But there came a point where he said, I've had enough. 
and he drew the line, eventually. So I think the point for us is, look, where do you draw your line? Look, Christians will disagree on what sort of issues you've got to make a stand on, must take a stand on that. No, look, don't get so het up about it. Of course, there are lots of issues where we might disagree. But you've got to draw your line somewhere, like Mordecai did. Otherwise, we just get squeezed into the, uh, to the culture of the world. Society will squeeze us into a certain mold. Uh, I saw a picture which uh, made me smile this week. We have the melons. Look, here's, um, here's a new way of growing melons to a certain size. Can you see them? Can you see them just about? Rather than just having melons grow on a tree, now you, grow, you can grow them in a mold to a certain EU size and standard. And uh, they're all just squeezed into a mold. I mean, that's just weird. That's just weird. You know, why would you do that? M- melons, they're fine. Why, why do you want them like a cube? I mean, easy to start. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Um, but you can grow a melon in a mould so they all come out exactly the same size. Exactly, the, I mean, that's just absurd. But that, you know, that's what the world is doing. It'll just, it'll just push us all into a certain mould. Just blend in. Just blend in. Uh, you know, just you know, be like Aaron. Just, just go for it. You know, pluralism. Don't rock the boat. Don't, you know, don't. Shh, just blend in, blend in. Just all be the same, please. Don't stand out. Don't be awkward. Now, where will you draw the line and say, no, no, look, I'm a, if you are, look, I'm a Christian. And actually, I, I, I can't do that. That's just, that's just a bit too far. Now, we can disagree on a number of issues where we might do that. But where, where are your lines? Uh, what, um, for example, what legislation going through Parliament would upset you enough to make a stand on it? I don't know. I mean, we can disagree on that. But what would upset you so much you'd have to say, no, enough, I've got to make a stand on that? At work, what, what, what could happen that would just be of so, um, just too dubious legally that you just look, I can't, or morally better, I can't do that. Look, I think you're asking me to lie to a client, and look, I'm drawing the line there, I can't do that. Or in your personal life, I mean, what will it be? I don't know, what area? Drink, look, I'll have so many drinks, but I just draw the line at there, at two. And I, look, I, I just won't take any more than that, drink any more than that. Or um, again, with, with friends or colleagues, look, okay, you can mock me for being a Christian, that's fine, that's fine. But please, don't mock Jesus Christ. Look, I just, I'm just going to draw the line there and say, please don't do that. Because, you know, for me, he's my saviour. And he means a lot. And, look, I'd love to speak to you about him. So, please, can we just draw the line there? Now, I don't know what that is for you. I don't know where you draw the lines. But I think the lesson of Mordecai is you've got to do it somewhere. Even if you can go through five, six years of compromise, you've got to do it somewhere. Say, look, enough, enough. Now, what happens to Mordecai? Well, he upsets some people. Uh, in particular, he upsets crazy Haman. Uh, so Haman just goes, oh, he goes crazy. Uh, verse 5, when Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai instead. Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. I mean, you just, this man is just, just pitifully, pitifully feeble. You know, one person won't bow down to him and, you know, I mean, what a, you know, he's incredibly proud, fragile ego. And look, you may upset people if you, make, if you take a stand. When you draw your lines, you'll upset someone. But hey... You've got to draw them somewhere. 
So at some point, living in exile, you've got to think, I refuse to kneel to that. And I'm sure we can have, you know, we can talk about what's it, what sort of issues, but, but if you've got no lines anywhere, you'll just be squeezed into a mold. You won't be distinctive anymore. So at some point, we've got to refuse to kneel. A second thing, at some point, we have to risk the palace or risk our place in the palace, like Esther did. Okay, so beginning at chapter 4, Mordecai um, is in sackcloth and ashes. He's mourning, oh my goodness, this nutter Haman is going to try and kill all the Jews throughout the empire. So he's mourning in a sackcloth and ashes. He's, he's crying out to God, please will you have mercy upon us. Now Esther's clueless because uh, she's in the palace, um, completely cut off and separate. Now um, uh, uh, the archaeology of Susa, so the capital or the winter capital of the Persian empire, uh, the palace itself was built on a shelf above the land. And this shelf means about 120 feet up. So if you're in the palace, you really did look down on the hoi polloi. I mean, you, you really didn't mix with them. You know, you're from a great height, you're looking down. So Esther's completely cut off and uh, separate from this. So Mordecai, verse 8, has to let her know what's happening. She, uh, he fills in the details for her and says, Look, now, Esther, can you plead before the king? Um, side point, the, uh, the story slows down now. So at this point, you get reported speech. You get actually what, what Mordecai said and what Esther says. And that's rare in the book. Most of the time, it's just the narrator, and this happened, and this happened, and this happened. So when you get speech reported, that's really important. <laughs> We're meant to notice this. Okay, so it slows down for this conversation of via intermediaries between Esther and Mordecai. So uh, uh, Mordecai says, come on, Esther, you need, to, uh, you need to step up to the plate. You need to go to speak to the king. But Esther's not so sure, verse 11. Well, look, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that he be put to death. The only exception to this is for the king to extend the gold scepter to him and spare his life. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. Now, this is true. I mean, archaeologists have dug up tablets to show this is the place the king would have around him, uh, 12 blokes holding axes. And uh, if you just wandered in, hey, king, and they'd um, chop you death, you know, he was so important that you had to be summoned. The only exception, if he extends his golden scepter, okay, gracious. Now, Esther's a bit worried about this point. Hey, look, uncle, kind of, uncle, I I haven't been with a guy for 30 days, and he doesn't sleep alone. You know, I'm not his hot favorite at the moment. Um, I'm a bit nervous about this, says Esther. Well, says Mordecai back to her, verses 12 to 14, you've got to go for it. You've got to go for it. You need to use your position to save the lives of thousands. And so eventually Esther says, okay, verse 16, I'll go. I'll go. I don't know what's going to happen. I might die, but I'll go. Let me try and draw out three little applications for us uh, from what's going on here in chapter 4. Let me give them to you. Uh, We live in the palace. The palace is alluring, but our actions matter. Uh, First of all, then, we live in the palace. What do I mean by that? Esther, then, is in a position of influence where she could change the structures of society. She could save the lives of thousands. She could really make a difference in her culture. And so can we. 
Now, look, we don't live in the, the palace, the citadel, in, the, uh, in, in Susa, in the Persian Empire, in 500 BC. Of course not. We live in London. But in the UK, London is the place of influence. It's the financial capital. It's the political capital. It's the cultural capital of the country. This is a place of influence in the national scene. Okay, perhaps. But you know, some will say, okay, fine, fine, fine. But um, look, I, I don't get to whisper sweet nothings in the ear of the monarch. And um, uh, I, you know, I just don't have that sort of position of influence. Well, you know, no, not, not many. Although, don't be naive, some already have uh, positions of influence in education, in the media, in politics. Some already do. And uh, some of you will go on to have those sort of positions of influence. But all of us can have it make a difference, a little difference where we are, working for the good of God's people, changing society. But for Esther, you see, this is her, this is her moment of decision. This is a big moment for Esther. This transforms her, what she does here. Now, uh, 14 times in the book, she's referred to as Queen Esther. 13 of them are after this decision because she changes after this. From this moment on, when she makes a good decision to go, she's Queen Esther because now she's doing something. And, as the, and she gains momentum and she becomes really, really influential and important as the book goes on. This is a big moment. It's kind of um, her Wilberforce moment. I don't know if you saw the film uh, Amazing Grace, which uh, uh, is a biopic of uh, William Wilberforce, of course, who campaigned to abolish uh, the slave trade. There's a moment in the film, if you've seen it, when um, his best friend, William Pitt, slightly stitches him up because um, uh, uh, Wilberforce is hosting a dinner and Pitt has invited all the guests. Kind of odd. But um, they're all people anti the slave trade. So there's Thomas Clarkson and Hannah Moore and they show him all the, uh, the, uh, the irons that slaves are kept in and they retell some stories and Wilberforce is being horrified by this. And Clarkson says to him, uh, Sir, w- um, we've heard that you're in a... Pro- you're, um, you're deliberating. Should you serve the country as a member of parliament or should you serve the Lord full time? We humbly suggest you can do both. You know, hurrah, off he goes and uh, uh, leads the campaign. But is that sort of moment for Esther. Esther, what will you do? What will you do? Esther, you've been put here for such a time as this, maybe, says Mordecai. End of verse 14. Who knows, but that you have come to a royal position for such a time as this. For this. We live in the palace. We live in positions of influence in an influential place. Maybe God has put you where you are for such a time as this. What will you do? The, um, one, um, one commentator I found quite interesting, uh, Gordon McConville, he said, look at, these, uh, look at the books of Persian exile. There's Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, all kind of at the same time, uh, talking about how the Jews are going to live under this uh, Persian empire. And you've got Ezra, he's the prophet. He's the Bible teacher who stands up and teaches the Bible people, telling them what to do. You've got Nehemiah, he's the sort of great sort of political leader who gets things done, organizes the building project in Jerusalem. And you've got Esther, the girl from the backwater who does good. <laughs> she does what she can. And he says, look, I wouldn't make a big point of it, but that's quite interesting, isn't it, that God uses all of those sorts. 
You know, he'll use the Bible teachers. Yeah, he'll use the people in the high position of influence. And he'll use the girls from the backwater who just happen to be somewhere and can at the right time say the right thing or do the right thing. Now, you know, I think he's overstating the case a little bit. She is the queen. That's kind of quite a good position she's ended up in. But there's a point there. There's a point there. God can use people in all sorts of places, and he will. God has put people in all sorts of secular occupations, positions, for such a time as this. We live in the palace. Uh, second little thing, the palace is alluring. Uh, Mordecai says, Esther, you need to go and speak to the king. Esther, well, she says, verse 11, I'm not so sure. Um, don't you know the law? And um, do you remember Vashti, five years ago? No, she stood up to the king and she got booted out. She completely lost her position. Hey, look, if I go in, I could lose my position. Uh, in fact, I could lose my life. Mordecai, you know, <laughs> it's a big ask. You're asking a huge amount for me to go and do this. Yeah. Yeah, he says, I know that. But look at it this way, verse 13. Do not think that because you're in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. Hey, look, um, if you say nothing, someone will find out you're a Jew. Someone will dob you in, and you'll get killed anyway. Verse 14, if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. Now, look, Esther, God can do what he wants. He doesn't need to use you, and uh, if you don't speak up, well, we all may be murdered here in Susa, but somewhere, at some place in the empire, God will raise someone else up, and he'll save all the Jews over there. God can do what he wants. But... Here comes the pot. You know, don't be naive, he's really saying here. Don't think you're safer backing Xerxes. Don't think you're safe with the Persians. You're not safe. You know this king. At a whim, you know, he can kick you out and get a new wife in. Don't, you know, don't, be, don't trust in the secular powers. Trust in God. And the positive, of course, at the end of verse 14, who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. So look, Esther, yeah, the, the palace is alluring. You can get involved in the palace and, and just think, I don't want to jeopardize it. I don't want to jeopardize my career. I don't want to jeopardize my position. I don't want to jeopardize my social standing. Yeah, of course you can get into that position. But Esther, but us, don't, don't do that. Take a risk. Because the reality is, um, every time you take a stand on a moral issue, say at work, you're taking a bit of a risk. Look, I'm, I, can't, I can't do that, what you're asking me to do. Well, what will they think of you at work? Every time you, um, you speak out about Jesus Christ, <sighs> what will someone think of me? You're kind of taking a bit of a risk. You might lose a bit of cred. You know, you're taking a little bit of risk there to your social position. Every time you give away money to the work of the Lord, well, that's, you know, you can't buy quite the same clothes as your contemporaries, go on quite the same holidays. You know, it's a, it's a little bit of a risk you're taking to your social ranking. Yeah, of course. But if you never take that risk, then the palace has got you. The culture has got you. you know, the palace has become a prison to you. And your freedom's gone if you never take a risk for God. See what Mordecai is saying? Come on, Esther. 
What are you doing? You've lost it. Unless you're willing to take a little bit of a risk. Will you, we'll ask, will we, will we risk promotion in career, risk opinion of friends, of colleagues, for the Lord? The palace is alluring, and the temptation is never to say anything, never to do anything that rocks the boat. But what if we've been brought for such a time as this, to take a risk, to speak out? We live in the palace. The palace is alluring. Last thing, our actions matter. Now, we said last week that one of the striking uh, um, uh, features of the book, perhaps the most striking feature of the book, is God is absent, apparently. So there's no mention of God, there's no religious activity taking place that's spoken of as such. God apparently is absent. And uh, that's deliberate for for two reasons, I think. One, to emphasize that even in life when God appears hidden, he's still active. God's silence is not his absence. Even though you can't see him doing miracles, he's still involved in the world. And that's being emphasized. But the second reason I think God is taken out of the pages is to emphasize what we do matters. It really matters. Just because the Lord is in control, that doesn't lead to inactivity. That leads to action. It really matters. So here in this chapter 4, I mean, the writer's really gone out of his way to, um, to sort of wipe God out of the background. So verse 14, Mordecai can say, look, relief and deliverance will come from the Jews from another place. Why are you so confident, Mordecai? Well, because he knows that God will provide it. And verse 15, why is Esther fasting? Look, go gather all the Jews, fast for me. I'm going to fast for three days and three nights with my, uh, with my maids. Why would she do that? That makes no sense. You don't eat or drink for three days. You have smelly breath. You don't, you know, that's not very good when you're trying to allure your husband. You know, it just, why, that doesn't make sense. Why is she doing it? It's because she's doing it to the Lord. And you pray and fast to the Lord. Um, but God is he's wiped out. Why? To emphasize that what she does matters. Our actions matter really matter now of course i guess some of you might think okay yes i have a place of small influence but to be honest i no, i have compromised to get where i am maybe not for five or six years maybe less maybe more but look i've done things which morally perhaps i shouldn't have done no one has known me as a christian to this point in my life in my workplace amongst my friends um i've blown it haven't i well no Because you are just like Esther. She'd blown it five, six years. But God could still use her. Okay, so you've made a hash of it in the past. Now, what if God has brought you to where you are for such a time as this? To speak out. To be distinctive. To make a difference. For such a time as this. Okay, let's finish. Uh, uh, what will happen? Well, it's kind of left on a cliffhanger. Esther says, I'll go and maybe I'll die, maybe I won't. And God doesn't make promises about what will happen. You know, what will happen to Esther? You know, if the book ended there, what would you do? (laughs) Um, What happened to Esther? Well, you know, that's our lives, isn't it? Take a risk. Well, well, you know, okay, I'll go for it. But what will happen? Don't know. (laughs) Don't know. Um, Maybe we'll perish. Maybe we'll lose a lot of social standing. Maybe we'll lose our job. If we're distinctive, gosh. But what's the worst that can happen? Because the Lord is in control. The book ends on a cliffhanger. Okay, let's finish. Esther then. I I guess here, I think here in chapters 3 and 4, Mordecai and Esther, they are models for us. 
Esther in particular is an example. Okay, what do you do? At some point you stand up. What, will you, Esther, at, for, you know, at such a time as this, what will you do? And that's the challenge to us, I think. At such a time as this, what will we do? Will we be distinctive? Will we live for Jesus Christ? Or will we just be squished into the mold of the world? For such a time as this. So Esther is a model for us, but more than that, she is a, a shadow. She is a type. She is a small picture of Jesus Christ. Because, of course, he didn't just risk his life. He didn't just risk his place in the palace. He knew precisely what he was doing. He left his palace. He left the palace of heaven, which he dwelt in for eternity, knowing that he'd come and die on a cross. Not just the risk of perishing, the knowledge of perishing. And what does he do for you and me? Well, he comes and pleads for us. He pleads before the king of the universe, before his father. I guess slightly in the words of eight, Mordecai says to Esther, go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. That's what Jesus Christ does. He comes before his father and begs for us and pleads for mercy on the basis of his death for us. So do you see, yes, she's an example, but also she's, she's a type, she's a shadow, just a little hint, a picture of the one who so much more pleads for us, the one who wins us mercy. So you see, it's in, the, it's in the death of Christ for you that you'll find the power to risk for him. Do you see that? In the death of Christ for you, you'll find there the power to risk for him at such a time as this. Let's pray together. Father, we know the temptation to be uh, squeezed into the mold of the world is a very strong one. Uh, and Father, we pray that uh, we'd resist that. We'd be distinctive, working for the good of society, working for the good of your people. We'd take a risk. We'd stick our necks out for you, being known as Christians, living distinctively as Christians. We would be inspired by the example of Esther, who is a shadow of the Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that we might live for him. And Father, we pray that in his death we would find the power and the strength to risk for you. Amen.